The following is a sermon from the church at Cherrydale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit us at tccherrydale.com. Right, so what is the goal uh, anytime we pick a teaching series in, in kind of the church calendar? I think uh, kind of in three buckets, each beginning with an E. Uh, what, are we, what are we running after? What are we going to run after in this series and really in all of them? So the first would be we want to exalt Christ. We want to put Jesus on display such that you see him clearly. If you know and love him, that your heart is inflamed with love, that you grow in your capacity to love him. If you're new, you're outside of Christianity, you're just checking out Jesus, that you would see him clearly. Secondly, uh, we want to equip the church. So the goal would be uh, that you walk away, if you're a follower of Jesus, you walk away um, not only loving Jesus more, but being better equipped to, to follow after him in your daily life. And then uh, thirdly, we want to engage all the hearers. So I want everybody to kind of be able to step into, whether it's a sermon text or a topic that we're looking at, I want you to be able to step into it and say like, okay, I understand why that, that helps to make sense of the life that I'm living. So that's what we're going to run after in this teaching series, uh, You Ask For It. And my subject this morning is, uh, what about doubt? Each week we're going to look at a different kind of question, a hot topic as it relates to uh, the Christian faith. And when I speak of doubt this morning, what I'm, what I'm not talking about primarily is doubt related to questions of, am I a Christian or not? So like, personal doubt, am I saved, can I lose my salvation, but rather we're talking about doubts as it relates to the truthfulness of Christianity or to some of the major tenets of the Christian faith, that, that kind of going back to the Genesis story, did God really say and then filling in the blank with whatever the issue is that we're discussing. What I want to do this morning is kind of set the scene for the series, but also tackle a subject like what, what about doubt? Is, is it a sin for me to doubt? What do I do with my doubts? So wh why does that topic matter? We can think of it in, in layers. One would be just kind of statistical uh, analysis, statistical observation. I read a stat this week from Barna that said 65% of Christians uh, recognize or affirm that they've had serious doubts about their faith at some point in their Christian journey. Now, that stat means about as much to you and me as any stat means, which means very little, because we don't even know who the people are. We don't know what their doubts are. We don't know how we, they define serious. So you can kind of throw out the stat, uh, but at least it's like, okay, that's significant because uh, some newscast would run that stat and say it's significant. But maybe the second layers are more appropriate. There's certainly a cultural phenomenon around uh, this issue of doubt. We, we see in our day uh, the rise of supposed deconversion stories. Uh, people that once professed faith in Jesus and now are renouncing that. This week I, I went to the section of my, my bookshelf that's uh, for apologetics, kind of Christian theology section. And one of the books I pulled was... Um, uh, I can't remember the title, but the author's name uh, is Joshua Harris. Name Joshua Harris might uh, be significant to you. He wrote the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, but he also wrote an apologetics textbook. So here's the basis of the Christian faith. And if you've been following kind of uh, Christian subculture, you know that this year, within the last year or so, Joshua Harris came out and said, uh, by all accounts, I'm no longer a Christian. So renounced the faith, walked away, pastoring a church, having written, uh, we could point to people like Jen Hatmaker, we could point to Rhett and Link and, you know, kind of podcast uh, fame, people that said, uh, I believe, but I, I don't believe anymore. Okay, so there's some significance to that. 
But perhaps the, the bottom layer of this is what really gives this subject some resonance for us, and that is our own personal stories. Like we have friends or family members who really get caught up on some of these significant issues. Uh, as we talk about the problem of evil, as we talk about what do we do with the issue of sexuality, as we, we talk about the gospel and politics, like these are issues that are, that are hang-ups, and perhaps for some of you, they're issues that are hang-ups. So this, this has real personal appeal for us to get to the, the bottom of our doubts and be able to say, like, how do I handle them? What am I supposed to do? So to tackle that subject, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians and we're going to start looking uh, at verse 18, First uh, Corinthians verse 18, and we'll go to the end of that chapter, though I want to camp out uh, most specifically on this first verse. <clears throat> so verse 18 of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, as you're, as you're turning there, we can set a little bit of context, we're not going to walk through the entirety of 1 Corinthians, but I think of the letters to the, to the church at Corinth a bit like uh, my practice when my kids come back from spending overnight at their grandparents' house, okay? Uh, if you're a parent, you know this reality. You send them away, they're doing their thing, and then they come back home, and you're like, all right, we got, we got to reestablish some things, all right? There's some, there's some ground rules. There's some ways that you talk to mom and dad. We don't get milkshakes after every meal. Remember, this is what it means to be under authority, Paul's been with this church, they uh, are, are kind of getting sideways in their understanding of the gospel, and particularly some practices within the church, and so Paul's writing letters back to these people that he deeply loves, trying to establish them in their faith. And he appeals uh, in chapter 1, he, he talks about just some of the chaos in the church. If you let your eyes drift back to the paragraph before what we're going to consider, he says, you guys are getting all jumbled up. You're following after all of these different people, all these different leaders. There's factions in the church. You're divided. And then he writes in verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God for those who are being saved. Let's read it again. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. Now, my brain is weird. Uh, my, my brain thinks in pictures. The, the, uh, the, the happiest I get on my computer is the moment we've got a document and there's the relationship between a few things and I get to go up to the top and go, insert chart. You guys know what I'm, what I'm talking about? And you insert the chart and then it gives you all these cool options like do you want a bar graph or a pie graph or do you want this thing to relate to this thing in this way? I geek out on that. I love trying to figure out like what's the best visual to help us see the relationship between things. So I've been thinking about uh, these couple of paragraphs, which I guess is a good thing if you're going to stand in front of a couple hundred people and talk about it, to have been thinking about it for a little bit. So I've been thinking about this passage uh, this week. What do we do with Paul's uh, exhortation to the church in Corinth about wisdom and how they should pursue wisdom? And to run after that, I kind of built my own PowerPoint this morning. So we don't have PowerPoint. Uh, we're outside. We can't do that. Uh, but I got a little working illustration for us that at least helps my mind capture uh, what's going on in this text. So Paul is going to begin by establishing something about God's wisdom. So if we start here 
on the far side, we're going to establish that this is the place of God's wisdom. Now, we don't have time in our passage this morning or uh, from the stage to unpack this idea of what is God's wisdom, but, but track the, the fact that Paul is, is writing to the church and he's saying, hey, you are pursuing all sorts of alternative paths for wisdom, but I want to establish what is the path to get after God's wisdom. Now, we, we don't have time to, to, to get to, uh, is there a God? Is that God wise? And is that God one such that he would reveal himself, that he would declare his wisdom to people? You're just going to have to work with it. I'm, I'm assuming that to be the case, that there is a God, and that if there is a God who is literally God, that that God is wise. And if that God is wise and that God is loving, then it would make sense that he has created a world such that people could get at his wisdom could know how to live in the world that he has created. And so Paul in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1 says there's a certain path for us to get to God's wisdom. So we're going to establish that across the front of the stage with this big phrase. And this is the anchor not just for this paragraph, but it's the anchor for the entirety of the book. He says that the word of the cross is God's wisdom. This is the, the path that people are walking to get to this destination. Now, notice in, your, in, in verse 18, he tells us a few things about what's going on on this path. First, he establishes what defines the path. The path is defined as the, the word of the cross. This is the, the message of the gospel and particularly, as he's going to say in a minute, this is the, the foolish message of the gospel. This is the message that God sent his son, that Christ lived the perfect life that we could not live, died the death that we deserved, and gives that to us, that righteous standing before God as a grace gift. It's the, the way of the cross, the word of the cross that's told for us, that's encapsulated in the story of our Bible telling God's foundation in creation and the journey up to Jesus. And so Paul says in verse 18, if you want to get to God's wisdom, the path to get there is the word of the cross. It's the message of the gospel. Then he tells us a couple of other things about that. He tells us the, the travelers, who's on this path. Look, look back in your text in verse 18. Who's on this path? Those who are being saved. So there's a certain subset of humanity that is walking along this path. They're following the word of the cross, pursuing God's wisdom, and as such, they are being saved. They are following God's wisdom, and they are being saved. And then what else does it tell us about those that are on this path? What's their experience of the word of the cross? They experience it as the, the power of God, okay? So track with me. We've got travelers, those who are being saved. They're following the word of the cross. They're experiencing it as the power of God, and they are, by virtue of this process of being saved, arriving at God's wisdom. But notice in verse 18, we have another subset of travelers, Jump off the stage for a second. 
will illustrate this. The mic's going to squeal on me, so you guys will have to bear with me for a minute. <clears throat> but we've got another path being demonstrated here. And we're not told a ton about this path, but we, do, we are told that there are people on a different path in verse 18. Those people who are on a different path are those who are perishing. They're walking a different path to get to a different destination. We can define this as human understanding. So the people that are on a different path, there are those who are, are perishing, and they're walking a path toward human understanding. And, and, and we're not told in verse 18 like what, what defines that path that we're walking, but we could sum it up and maybe some, some language like, like I've written on this side, if you can't see it, language like feelings. I'm going to pursue what, what feels right to me, what seems to make sense. They're, they're walking a path of, of science, like what, what as in our moment, what have the brightest minds of our culture said to be true? Uh, they're, they're walking a path of culture. This one's probably the most common in our day. Like, what's the, the, the defining ethos of the moment? How, do, how does that frame up what I should be doing or what I should, should be following after? Or they're just doing what uh, seems right. They're following a pragmatic path. They're, they're going to try something, and if it works, great. We'll keep doing that. If it doesn't work, we'll follow something else. So one, the path that's getting to human understanding, and this makes sense for us, the path to human understanding is uh, a path of self. And the path to God's wisdom is a path defined uh, by God. Now the thing that Paul tells us about this path, and it calls to mind Jesus' famous narrow way, wide way uh, from Matthew's gospel, that these people are on a path to perishing. They wouldn't say it as such, but Paul is making a claim about them that they would not make about themselves that the destination of following an alternative path from the way of the cross leads to death and destruction. Look back in verse 18. He tells us one thing about what these people are saying while they're walking the road. So these people on the top, they're following this and they're saying, this is the power of God. I think it's interesting that those walking this road, they're not making a claim about the path that they're following in verse 18. But what are they saying? They're saying that this road, this path, is foolish. It's folly. So those, yeah, God does not like our values this morning. He, or he's just blowing them over. I'm just kidding. Uh, <clears throat> so they say, power of God. Those walking this road say, you're fools. Now, I want you to hold that idea because we're going to return to it in just a minute because I think it's going to be important to frame up how we understand doubt. But turn back to 1 Corinthians, and let's keep reading. In verse 19, Paul says, For it's written, I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'll set aside the intelligence of the intellect. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? Let's stop there for, again for a second. So what's Paul establishing? He's saying something about the, the travelers that are on these two roads. And basically, if we were to summarize it, we'd say it this way. The people that are walking this road is not who you would expect to be walking this road. 
Uh, so let, let's imagine for a second we had a neutral observer standing in the middle of these two paths. And the neutral observer with his cultural eyes was making a judgment call about the people that are walking these two paths. What does Paul establish in verse 19 and 20? That neutral observer is going to get it entirely wrong. Because what's he going to say? This wise teacher, intelligent, what's he going to say about those walking this road? You're a fool. This doesn't make any sense. This is foolish. So the neutral observer in our text would get it entirely wrong, which makes this incredibly difficult for us because the neutral observer at this moment is our dominant culture. We're kind of fish in water, experiencing life from the perspective of this neutral observer. And so we get caught up in the judgment call that's made by this individual, the, the one who is wise, the intelligent versus the fool. And Paul writes that this neutral observer is going to get it wrong. Why? For since, I'm in verse 21, in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through God's wisdom. Uh, through wisdom. God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and Greeks ask for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both to Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the question then is, all right, so we've got, we got a neutral observer who says this is wisdom and this is folly. But we got people on this road. So the question is, how do they get to this road? Paul's answer in verse 21 to 24 is the grace of God. The grace of God is what takes someone who's captivated by this path and places them on the road whereby they believe the word of the cross and pursue God's wisdom. So he says, watch out, and we're going to get this in just a minute. He's going, to say, he's going to challenge them, hey, consider your calling. And the reminder here in verses 21 to 24 is that none of you jumped to this road on the basis of your intellect. You didn't figure it out. The way that we got to this path, the way that we got to the word of the cross as the power of God such that we would experience God's wisdom is the grace of God. And he said, he holds up the two dominant categories, Jews and Gentiles alike. And he says, neither of them figured out how to get to this road. They demand signs, they seek after wisdom, which if you know the backstory of the church at Corinth, you know this is like the hotbed of philosophy and debate. And so the people are saying, how do we get at what is true? And he says, no one is doing it on the basis of themselves. In fact, Apart from the grace of God, you're locked on this bottom road. But because of the grace of God, that which was once a stumbling block, Christ and him crucified, has become for some of you the power of God. He has, in his grace, convinced you of the foolishness of a crucified Messiah. And therefore, he says, you're placed on this road. And then verse 25. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. 
And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So here's our contrast. Here's the great contrast of the passage. God's wisdom versus human understanding. You know, kind of quote finger, human wisdom. And he says, God is both, what does verse 25 say? God's way is both wiser and stronger. But friends, that, that is not how it appears. And this is the rub for us. The appearance, at least as travelers on these roads, is to believe that the, the way here is actually wise. And this is where I think, remember back in verse 18, Paul says, what, what are these people saying? Those people up there are fools. And here's the temptation for those of us that are up here. The temptation is to look at these people down here and say, they're wise. The challenge for us is to make wrong assumptions about the validity or the truthfulness of these two alternate paths to living life. And so Paul writes to establish them that this way, the way of the cross, that makes no sense to human intellect is actually wiser and stronger and therefore, is the path to God's wisdom. Which then gets us at the point of our sermon series, because we are travelers on these roads. We're walking the road, and the question for us then is, do I believe that the word of the cross is the power of God unto salvation and God's wisdom? For me, it helps to envision these two alternate paths with a set of mile markers, and this will be what we consider throughout our sermon series. Because as travelers on these roads, we come at different junctures of life, different mile markers along the road, and we have to make some decisions. And the decisions that confront us really boil down to two issues. One would be culture, and two would be circumstance. So at mile marker number one, I've got the issue of 9-11, culture, or circumstance, a friend's death. And mile marker number two, I've got the issue of LGBTQ or my own sexual desires. Mile marker number three, we've got a philosophy textbook or an actual relationship with a Muslim friend. Mile marker number four, we've got worldwide poverty or the fact that uh, perhaps you were abused as a child. Now, on each of these mile markers, we're confronted with a different cultural issue, but also a very real personal circumstance. And as we're moving through our lives, we come at these mile markers, and we're confronted with, so what do I do about evil? In light of something like 9-11, or in light of the fact that I just lost my best friend because of cancer, what do I do with human sexuality because the prevailing, the prevailing ethos of culture, this path, tells me everything is right about LGBTQ culture. And I've got some really disordered sexual desires that make me want to believe that this is actually right. So what do I do? Or I read this weird philosophy textbook that my professor at Furman gave me, and it told me that truth and wisdom can be found in human understanding alone. 
And it also told me that I was utterly foolish to believe in the exclusivity of Jesus, that he's the only way to heaven. Because the reality is the only reason that you believe the Christian gospel is because you were born in a place like Greenville, South Carolina. If you'd been born in the Middle East, you would believe something radically different. And what's good for you is good for them. And so can't we all just get along? We're all just looking at an elephant from a different perspective anyway. Or I actually have a relationship with a professing Muslim. And I find out that I actually like them. We have a lot in common. We interact, we hang out, we do things together, and that tries me, that presses me. Do I actually believe that Jesus is the only way to God? Or I see the commercials or the ads of poverty around the world. Or I confront my own personal abuse as a child. And I'm confronted with what do I actually believe to be true about the world? And the question at each of these mile markers is, what choice are we going to make? Are are we going to lean into the, the word of the cross as the power of God unto God's wisdom? Or are we going to give to the prevailing ethos of those who are perishing? Let's continue reading in 1 Corinthians. Paul says, Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many of you are wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what's insignificant and despised in the world What was viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what was viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what does Paul exhort the church to do, and what's our challenge as we move through this series? It's the the phrase there in the first verse we read, to consider our calling. Consider our calling. Four quick points of application for us this morning about considering our calling on this road. First would be that we just own our foolish position. That we own or accept our foolish position. This doesn't mean that we check our brains at the door. It doesn't mean that we don't think carefully about the truthfulness of these issues and why they matter. But it does mean that we are recognizing something, that this path, the way of the cross, the word of the cross leading to God's wisdom, is never going to make sense to the prevailing ethos of the culture. We're never going to get to the point where everyone that looks in says, oh, I get it. That makes perfect sense. That lines up. So to the extent that we try to figure it all out, we try to make it palatable to the broader culture, we end up, uh, we end up giving. So we, we want to, to acknowledge our foolish uh, position. Secondly, uh, we want to lean into God's defined path. That's what we're going to try to do through this teaching series. We're going to try to lean into the word of the cross, the truthfulness of scripture, because it is 
the power of God unto salvation. Thirdly, we're going to acknowledge our limited perspective. We're going to acknowledge our limited perspective. We're going to recognize that as travelers on these roads, it's hard for us to see clearly. So at the end of the day, the, 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 the truth that we're purporting is going to be based on faith. We're going to trust in the truthfulness of God's word. And then fourth, we're going to try to journey with some traveling partners. We're going to try to journey on this road to God's wisdom with some traveling partners. These roads, the, 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 the temptation to stay on this road or leave that road and go down here is so compelling that without some traveling buddies, we're going to be in trouble. So we're going to admit our foolish standing, going to acknowledge our limitations, we're going to depend on God's path, and we're going to lean in with some traveling buddies, believing that the word of the cross, the message of God unto salvation is the pathway to God's wisdom. And that's exactly what we're given uh, in these consistent reminders of the beauty of the gospel. We sing songs, we hear sermons preached, and we receive the elements uh, of the Lord's Supper, which is what we're going to do now. We receive these elements as a reminder of the foolishness of what we who are in Christ believe. Those who are distributing the elements can go ahead and the band can come on up and uh, get ready to lead us as we sing. These elements, as they're distributed to us, they're a reminder for those of us who receive them that we have, by faith, trusted in the foolishness of a Messiah as the path to God's wisdom, that our salvation, that the entirety of our lives is banked on the way of the cross, the message of Jesus. And as we confront really challenging issues that make us doubt, that bring questions to our minds, that we're returning time and time again to God's defined path with some traveling companions to renounce the foolishness of the world, even though everything in us says that that is actually wisdom, and pursue the wisdom that God has provided. So this morning, as you receive the elements... Uh, as uh, they're passed to you, if you would take a minute uh, to, to once again kind of double down your commitment, your faith in the truthfulness of what God has said to be true of Jesus. And then in just a moment, I'll lead us to observe the meal together. we're outside and it's difficult to see everyone uh, making sure that everyone who got elements uh, receive them. If not, if you'll just 
put your hand in the air. The, the guys will see and make sure you have them. I don't see anyone. As a reminder of the, the foolish message of the gospel, the broken body and spilt blood of a crucified Messiah, we read these words from Matthew's gospel. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and he said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Our Father, we thank you that in the wisdom of God, you saw fit to accomplish salvation in such a way that none of our minds would have gotten to. That you, in your kindness, sent Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That the path to salvation isn't a philosophical one. It isn't an intellectual one. It isn't us putting all the pieces together. But the message of the gospel is a message of your grace. You doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And then you and your kindness stooping to save us, to, to place us on the proper path. To allow the scales to fall from our eyes, to allow us to see clearly your wisdom in sending Christ. And that this message, this way of the cross, then is the defining path uh, for our lives. We pray that as we uh, gather, as we sing, as we receive the elements, as we uh, think on the truthfulness of Scripture, we pray that you would press us time and time again back to the way of the cross, that you would guide us by your wisdom, and that we who are being saved would exalt you as the one true and living God. We ask that for Christ's sake. Amen.